Good morning, One Church. How are y'all today? Oh, you guys are, you guys are lively. I, I was impressed that they was clapping, and that it was on beat, which is not easy for a church to do. So, hi guys, my kids. They get to hear me speak to them today for the first time when I'm not actually giving them a lecture. I'm giving you all a lecture, so it's a nice moment. So I'm grateful to be able to share with you guys today, grateful to Pastor Blake to give me an opportunity to talk with you about the topic that he assigned me. He's like, Adam, you want to talk at one church? I'm like, sure, Pastor Blake. Oh, it's going to be great. Why don't you talk about angels? It's like, oh, is that my first message? Angels? Okay. Well, that's what we're doing today. But I'm grateful that he's given me an opportunity, and I'm grateful that you all are giving him an opportunity to go and rest and get a little bit of recharge. It's the week in, week out thing. You know, being a pastor is a gift and it's a call, you know, but also you're pregnant all week and then you give birth and Monday you're pregnant again. So it's nice to take a couple weeks off from the labor of receiving and proclaiming the word um, publicly. So today I wanna just give you a quick little introduction about myself if you wanna if you wanna read more about my professional life you can find me on LinkedIn um, but I believe that in the scriptures in particular but life in general that text without context is just pretext for whatever you want it to be so when I teach I teach I'm more of a teacher than a preacher I'm not gonna get all fired up and I forgot my do-rag but <laughs> I may get fired up I don't know you guys are pretty feisty. But to understand the historical biblical context of what the scriptures are telling us so that we can set it in the context, not just of the, of the history, but also about what is God speaking to us right now about all of that. So this morning I'll be wrapping all that stuff together. And so I want to just give you a little bit of context of my own personal life is that I, I grew up in a Judeo-Christian family. Um, we were part of a Reformed Theological Covenant Bible tradition. Uh, I went to a Covenant Bible college, um, and I've been a pastor, senior pastor, youth pastor, worship pastor, coffee maker, toilet scrubber in the church, not in that order. Although some days after being a pastor, you wish you could just go back to quiet cleaning when no one's bothering you. Um, that's, I, I don't have an internal monologue sometimes. So I grew up in this covenantal reformed theological tradition where we were word, word, word. And, and so I was very cerebral. My mom gave me a book by Dallas Willard when I was 12 called The Divine Conspiracy. And it was this great theology book. And so I started reading Dallas Willard and Alistair McGrath and C.S. Lewis. And then I got into philosophy. I started reading philosophy when I was 15, Soren Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling. Uh, I struggled with an existential angst that I wasn't going to exist at some point in the future, and I'd be aware of it. So I thought, well, I should read philosophy. They've got answers for me. They didn't. But I spent most of my adult life reading books and thinking about things that all of my friends would look at me, and they just, well, who am I kidding? I didn't have friends. Um, the, <laughs> my problem, which were many, um, was that I was way too intellectual for the church. I didn't fit anywhere. I was supposed to just believe and do what the pastor told me. I had all these questions. And so I pursued knowledge 
and gathering information. And I began to discover that, that a lot of my church friends, they didn't really know what they believed. A few of them were really opinionated. But having an opinion is different than knowing what you believe, right? But even less knew why they believed what they believed. So they had doctrine and understanding, but they didn't have, like, what was the framework underneath it? What's the meta-narrative that's sculpting through history that's leading you towards this conclusion? And so I began to study philosophy because I wanted to know the why beneath the what. So I was always too intellectual for the church, and I was way too churchy for the intellectuals. I could hang with the philosophy people, and my friend was the chair of the department, but I talked about Jesus. And I said that God speaks, and that you can have a direct experience with God, and they all said, you're crazy. It doesn't happen. So I'm telling you that just to give you a little bit of context for me, because I am insufferably rational, argumentative, and theological and philosophical. You can ask my wife about the argumentative part of this. I'm really good at lawyering my way into deep trouble. There's a man that knows what I'm talking about. But I'm telling you that because we're talking today about the realm of the angelic. And I want you to know that what I'm going to be sharing with you today comes from that history and that context in my own life. And that what I began to experience after 28 years of gathering right and wrong and knowledge and becoming the master and commander of my own theoretical and theological ship. That I had an experience in September 2005 that changed everything. I was a worship leader in Colorado and I came to San Antonio because a guy invited me and it's a long story but on, on September 22, 2005, I had an experience where God spoke to me I had a vision. I didn't have language for this. I was reformed. Theology, right? The gift stopped at the end of the 90 with the death of the last apostle. But God spoke to me. I had an open vision, and he spoke to me about my wife, and he told me what was coming for my future, and then he healed me of liver damage from college and touched my body and changed my life. And the first thing that happened when he did that after I danced around in the backyard of this guy's house for 45 minutes with my arms above my head like this, the first thing that began to happen when I went home to tell my friends what God had done in my life is they all began to tell me I'm being led astray by the devil. And I lost all of the Christian community that I had. And God drove me into the wilderness, otherwise known as San Antonio, Texas. I left Colorado, I moved to San Antonio, I met my wife, Texan, had some three Texas babies. But what happened to me was that God interrupted, interjected, basically ruptured all of my intellectual, rational learning to tell me something more. Something that I had not acquired through all of my studies and skill. He broke through my dependency on right and wrong, good and evil, and began to speak to me about what he said was true. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or right and wrong, and on that day they died. Their connection to God died. 
Have you ever wondered why our most prized religious virtue is something God said would kill us? Knowing right and wrong, good and evil? Well, man, I'm not sure why I'm here, but I could do a whole message on this. To answer that question is that God never intended us to be the ones that held right and wrong, good and evil, without dependency on the tree of life. When we try and know things without knowing the one who is truth, if we try to know truth, if we try to know about God without being with God, we become gods unto ourselves. This morning, you guys were just singing and clapping to a song that said, your presence is an open door. I want to know you in ways I've never known you before. This is God's invitation to us. And we have a word for it that can sometimes make it sound mystical or ethereal. The invitation into God's presence is an invitation into living in a supernatural worldview. Living with a fundamental submission to the reality that God created the world that what is real is not just material. What is real is not just the stuff you can see, touch, taste, hear, feel. There is something that is true. In fact, I would submit to you that it's more true than the cognitive things or the material things that we can say, this is real. The supernatural is something that lives on top of the natural realm, not instead of the natural realm, or in opposition to the natural realm. The supernatural means that we have to submit to this reality that God isn't just material. The word submit is a really cool word in, uh, in James. I think it's James chapter 3. He says, submit to the devil and he will flee from you. That's not the right word. Don't, don't quote me on it. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. Whew, about to start a new heresy. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That word submit is a Roman military term that means to marshal the forces underneath the command, to fall in line. So you picture just an old encampment of military forces. A call goes out to war and they submit. They come into alignment underneath their commander to go out for battle. So when we submit to God or submit to the reality that there is a supernatural world that exists, we are aligning with God, agreeing with what God says is true, and we are preparing for battle. You guys heard a couple weeks ago, if you were here, a story of a battle. It's actually a story of a victory of a young man who talked about having spirits cast out of him with prayer and the laying on of hands. It's an incredible story, and it's available with what the Lord says. So this morning, I want to talk with you specifically about an aspect of the supernatural called the angelic realm, or angels. Now, I say angelic realm because angels aren't just like there's Gabriel and Michael, and then that's it. Right? There's, a whole, there's a whole realm of created beings, the scripture says, that are angels. And this morning, we want to talk about that and hopefully demystify the messengers. You guys probably know that angel just means messenger, right? Carrier of the word. 
Now, if you're a messenger, the implication there is, is that you have, one, a message, and two, you've been sent by someone to deliver the message. So that's what we want to talk about here this morning. So a few years ago, the Lord began talking to me about the angelic realm, and because I was so logical, I got very uncomfortable with this, right? I was good with healing, like I had been physically healed, and I've seen that stuff, and I was good with God speaking, because I've, I've received words of knowledge and wisdom for people that God's told me things that, that I couldn't know if it wasn't him speaking. Like, I've seen the supernatural world in operation, but he began to talk to me about the angels in the angelic realm, and that made me really uncomfortable, because <laughs> I was like, oh, man, I don't want to be one of those crazy weirdos that says, you know, every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. I'm like, I sound like Jim Gaffigan. Um, I didn't want to be one of those crazy weirdos. But then the Lord was like, you're already a crazy weirdo, right? Make your peace with crazy. My world is not just this material thing, okay? And so... I remember the first time that he was talking to me about that, and I began to say, okay, I submitted to the reality that this was real. And I said, all right, God. And I was out in the woods, and I was, spent a lot of time alone in the woods after I met God, because one, my friends didn't want to be around me, and two, that was the quiet spot where I could meet with him. So I was alone in the woods, sitting around a campfire. I was spending the night um, out camping, and I just submitted. I said, all right, God, I'm sitting around this fire in the nighttime, and I said, all right, God, I'm willing, and I want, not just willing, but I want, I want to see an angel. I want to know what this is about. I'm going to be a crazy weirdo. Show me an angel. And I asked him. I'm sitting there alone in the middle of the night into the woods around this fire, and it's quiet. The smoke is rising and the wood is crackling. And I asked God, show me an angel. And I began to just feel all this tingling in my body. And I began to look around. I sat there and I looked for like 30 minutes. And I saw nothing. <laughs> Ever. Nothing. Except smoke. Some embers popping onto me. Nothing. And I've never seen an angel. I've never seen one with my eyes. I've never, I maybe have entertained an angel unaware, like the writer of Hebrews says, but I, I, haven't, I haven't met an angel. I have a friend who has a picture of, of two Ethiopian children that he said were angels, but I don't know. But I can tell you this, that just because I haven't seen it with my own eyes doesn't mean they aren't real. So instead of sitting around the fire asking to see an angel, I did what we're going to do this morning. I opened up the Word, and I looked for angels in there. So let's do that together. I put together this chart of um, times in the Scriptures where angels encountered humans. And these are not times in the Scriptures where people mention angels. These are times when angels physically manifest into the natural world to talk to somebody about something that God says. The first one is Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, 
when angels are guarding the tree of life with their flaming swords. Then we see there's more, but this is sort of the, the greatest hits, if you will. Genesis 16, an angel announces the birth of Ishmael to Hagar, Abraham's mistress. Mistress may not have been the right word. Lot, an angel tells him about fleeing judgment, and it takes Lot's family out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham sees an angel when he's about to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. Jacob encounters an angel, the famous Jacob's Ladder, Ascending and Descending. If you guys want a copy of this little PDF, you can use your phones and scan that QR code, or you can do it on the stuff on the way out here. That's why that's up there. So Jacob sees one, Ascending and Descending. Moses sees an angel in a fire, in a bush, or a pillar. We can have a discussion whether that was an angel of the Lord, which in some translations it says that, or whether that was God himself or Yahweh. There's a lot of conversation around that. Balaam, the prophet, has an angel that tells him only to speak what the Lord says. All of Israel hears an angelic proclamation face to face in Judges 2, 1 through 4. Gideon, threshing, threshing wheat in a wine press, has an angel come. On multiple occasions, Gideon talks face to face with an angel, puts out a fleece with this angel. Manoah which is the, the, the mother of Samson, has an angel come and speak to them about announcing the birth of Samson. David sees an angel standing. The Bible says the angel was standing on temple. Well, it didn't say temple mount, but the angel was standing on Mount, on mount Zion between heaven and earth on the threshing floor of Ornan. And David sees the angel with an outstretched arm ready to reap Jerusalem. It's the same exact picture, by the way, of Genesis 22. When, the, when, when Abraham is ready to reap Israel, his son Isaac, the angel is ready to reap Jerusalem. There's an angel there. Elijah sees an angel, tells him to go arise and eat, takes him out after he deals with the prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth. Joshua sees an angel when he goes into the promised land. Ezekiel sees angels coming down out of heaven. Isaiah sees angels and one takes a coal from the altar and touches his lips. Daniel sees an angel while he's praying by the river, and the angel comes and says, from the moment you set your eyes to pursue me, I heard you, but I was delayed because of the prince of Persia. Zechariah in the Old Testament sees an angel. New Testament, Mary sees an angel. Elizabeth sees an angel. Zechariah sees an angel. Joseph, the husband, sees an angel. The shepherds see an angel. Jesus sees angels. The disciples see angels. The apostles, Philip, Cornelius, Peter, Paul, John, they all see and talk with angels. So, if all of these great men and women who worked with God for the good of his kingdom on the earth and accomplished some remarkable things, all worked with the angelic realm, do you think that God may have something for us? And even opening the door to that possibility can make a big difference in your life to say essentially, God, I am willing to receive from you Whatever you have for me, however you have it.
to not hold on to your religious upbringing to the degree that it closes you down from the new things that God wants to do. I'm going to go there. The, in the scripture, it's important that we live a biblical lifestyle. Would you guys agree with that? So, living a biblical lifestyle, the Bible is full of all kinds of discussions on topics, on truths, on principles. There's clear revelation in the Bible to live a biblical lifestyle. The most biblical thing about the Bible is that you would know eternal life and the one whom he sent, that you would encounter the living God and live immersed in his presence. Now, there's something else called anti-biblical. Anti-biblical is directly opposed to the word of God. It doesn't matter what your human reasoning is. If it isn't lining up with the truth of God's word, it's anti-biblical. But there's a third category, and it's extra-biblical. Extra-biblical means that it isn't anti-biblical, but we don't see it expressly written about or expressly talked about in the Bible. And even the Bible opens the door for extra-biblical. John says that if all the books in all the world were written, they could not contain the deeds of Jesus that he did on the earth. That there are things that God has done on the earth that are not in the Bible because God has done so much in and through his people that is actually what God is doing. And I just want to tell you, church, that you can live a biblical lifestyle by being open to things that God is doing that you can't point specifically to a verse and say, well, I'm going to do it because it's in the Bible. What do I mean? It sounds like I'm opening a door to heresy here now. So part of listening to God is that him beginning to give you impressions about what you should do and about who you are and about how you should move in the world or how to think. Can you point to a scripture in the Bible that tells you to vote in presidential elections? No. Maybe that's why 30 million evangelicals don't vote, which I think is a huge problem. A huge problem. So voting is extra biblical, but we can certainly make a case from the Bible to engage in civic discourse. But this causes problems. Some churches really don't want to talk about voting, don't want to talk about engaging with the political structures. We are set apart. Let's ignore that. We're going to come into our holy huddle and just live here. Now, the scriptures talk about us engaging in culture and talk about us knowing truth and that there are some things that are not explicitly written about in the Bible that God really wants to teach you about. And sometimes, if you've been raised in a strong Bible background like myself, if I couldn't see it in the Bible, I said it's not God. But I just want to tell you, church, God does a lot of things that aren't written about in the Bible. But he never does a single thing that goes against it. Okay? So you have to hold both of those things. There's lots that he does that isn't in the Bible, but he never does anything that contradicts or goes against the revealed word. Whew, that was for free. That's not in my notes. So now we have to take something out. So, a major role of the angelic is to reveal prophetic mysteries. 
This is what they do. They come and they speak the word of the Lord to the people of God. And one of those prophetic mysteries gets revealed to a guy named Zechariah. And I'm going to read this here in Luke 1, verse 5. If you guys have your Bibles, you guys can turn there. It'll be up on the screen. This is an angelic encounter revealing a prophetic mystery to one of God's people. Luke 5, 1, Luke 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before the Lord, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord to burn incense. This was to go into the holy place right before the curtain that goes into the Holy of Holies and light incense. And the incense was a constant petition, a presentation of a constant prayer and petition to God. The incense rises. We see this in Revelation. The incense of the prayers of the saints rises up to heaven and fills the bowls. So he goes in to pray. And, verse 10, the whole multitude of people were outside praying at the hour of incense. So that means that this was during a festival, probably Passover, doesn't specifically say, but it was probably Passover, and there was a ton of people up on Temple Mount at that point. Huge crowds, huge, like tens of thousands of people. So Zechariah goes in, and there appeared, verse 11, Luke 1, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. So look at that. The angel says, Your prayer has been heard. So he goes into the holy place to offer prayers to the Lord, and the angel says, I've come because you prayed. Your prayers are heard. What were his prayers? Well, apparently, he was praying for a baby. No. We don't know specifically what Zechariah was praying for. I don't think an old man prays for an infant. I know things were different back then, but I'm pretty sure no one in their 80s says, you know what I could use right now at this stage of my life? Poopy divers. I think his prayers were not for a kid. I think his prayers were for his nation. I think he was crying out for his nation. And he was in the holy place, having cried out repeatedly for his nation. And an angel shows up to tell him something about his nation. Whew. And this is what he says. Your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear, will bear you a son. And you will call his name John. You, Zechariah, call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, 
to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so Zechariah replies, what every old guy in the scripture says when an angel tells him this, happens more than you think. He's like, how can it be I'm old? And my wife is old. It's the same thing that Abraham said. I'm old and Sarah's womb is dead. Right? And then angel Gabriel, angel answers them. He's like, well, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I've come to give you this message. And because Zechariah didn't believe or whatever that was, the angel strikes him mute. And he comes out of the holy place on the Temple Mount with thousands of people out there, and they're all looking at him. Now, I don't know if he came out like Moses when Moses meets God on Mount Sinai, comes down with a glowing face, so he's got to put a veil over it, or whether he's ashen. But my guess, being that he's a pastor, is they were amazed that he wasn't talking. He was silent. Somebody got it. He couldn't speak. And it says all of Israel was amazed at these goings-on. So what happens here in this moment? Oh, I'm going to have to move ahead. What happens here in this moment is significant because God does something to break a 400-year silence. Have you guys heard about a 400-year period of intertestamental silence? Maybe you didn't use the word intertestamental. There's this idea that, that God didn't speak in between the last book in the Old Testament and the first book in the New Testament, that he was silent, right? And that gets preached sometimes to mean a variety of things. But I want to submit to you that that isn't exactly true. That the word of the Lord was still being spoken in the intertestamental period. There's three words for word in the New Testament. One is graphe. Graphe is where we get the word graphite, pen, written. And the graphe word in Greek is when Luke, in Luke 4, 8, when he goes into the synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth and stands on the Bema, which is this stone in all the synagogues, and you can stand on one in Israel if you go this fall. You can stand on a Bema, and Jesus stands on the Bema, and he unrolls the graphe of Isaiah and he proclaims, the year of the sovereign Lord is upon me. So the word for word that we most often associate with the word is graphe. But there's another word, and that word is logos. And logos is John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. And he goes on, the logos is the incarnate word. It's the word made flesh. It's the word on the earth. It's a Greek word that's got a long philosophical history that you guys just escaped a nice lecture on. So the logos is the incarnate word. The third word for word is found in Romans 10:17. Now faith comes from hearing and hearing comes from the word of God. This word for word is rhema and it means the thing that God is speaking or the now word, the word that ushers forth from the mouth. Now that's interesting. Faith comes from hearing and hearing comes from the Bible. That's not what the scriptures say. 
Faith comes from hearing, and hearing gets cultivated as you learn to listen to what God's saying to you. That's where faith comes from. Hebrews says that faith is the substance of the things you haven't seen. Substance is two words that means underneath which causing you to stand. Faith becomes the thing that comes up underneath you that gives you a firm footing in this life to stand in the middle of the chaos. So if you guys are having trouble with the corona crisis and the race riots and the elections and the stuff in the Middle East that nobody's talking about, but it's a big deal with Syrian and Turkish air raids into the Kurdistani regions and stuff over in China with currency manipulations and a new COVID virus that's coming out. Like, if anybody's concerned about all of this stuff, we need more now than ever a place on which to stand. And if you want that place and you're struggling to find it, I want to tell you one church, faith comes from hearing and hearing comes from the voice of God. You want to cultivate faith, learn to listen to what God says, and then do it. That's what we're talking about this morning, angels, messengers of God. So God breaks his rhema silence. This was not a written word silence. The 400-year period between the last Old Testament and New Testament was was in Jewish history called the rabbinic period. This was the period where for 400 years, they were chewing up, devouring the word, the Torah, the, the commandments of Moses. Two huge schools developed in this period of time that ultimately gave birth to the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud. Jesus grew up in a rabbinic period where everybody was reading and studying the word of God like they had never done in the history of Israel. The word of God was not silent during the intertestamental period. He just wasn't speaking rhema because he expected us to do the things he said already. Any parent knows this. I'll talk to you again when you've done what I just said. Okay? It's a good parenting technique. Instead of raging at them, I'll talk to you again when you've done what I said. Right? So what God is doing here now is he's breaking the reign of silence. Why? I think it's because the people of God had done what he wanted them. They got the word in them. They got the scriptures in him. They began to pursue that. Yes, it got twisted in religious, and Jesus came and you know, dissected that. But hear me now, church. The angel breaks the reign of silence to a man that had been crying out for his nation. And he breaks the reign of silence with the word that says, I am bringing you the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons. If you guys have a Bible, open up to the book of Matthew and go back one page. This is Malachi, the last word in the New Testament, or the last word in the Old Testament. And put it up there for me, I'll read it. Malachi 4, 5, and 6, the last spoken word of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. This was the last thing that God said, and 400 years later, he picks it up again when he breaks the silence, and he says to Zechariah, I am coming now in power to turn your nation around. 
and I'm going to be turning the fathers back to their sons and turning the daughters back to their fathers. I'm going to be reuniting the nuclear family, reuniting the children of God with the eternal one. I'm doing that now, and I am giving to you a seed to plant in the womb of your heart and the womb of your wife so that this can come forth in the world. And Zechariah struggles to believe the thing that he's been crying out for. Guys, if you pray crazy big prayers, God will answer them. But sometimes he answers them and you think, is this really true? Is he really going to do this? And I love the fact that when God breaks the silence to speak, the person who heard it didn't receive it. So what happened to them? They went silent. The silence that God wants to break in the world, if you don't agree with it, it doesn't get to go out into the world. So Zechariah was struck silent. And he comes out of the temple and everybody's looking is like, why is this preacher not talking? How is he silent? To close, I want to give you just two practical ways to learn to receive messages from God. Whether it comes through an angelic connection, whether it comes through Holy Spirit, whether it comes through reading the Word and just knowing something in your heart or your spouse or your pastor. Two things that you can do, that you need to do, to begin to receive words from the Lord. The first one, We have to agree. To agree means to say the same thing. So when God comes and says, Gideon, you are a mighty warrior, don't say, no, I'm not. I'm terrible and little and scared. When God comes and says, Moses, you are the deliverer of Egypt, don't say, God, I can't talk. Which wasn't the case. Moses was not a stutterer. The New Testament says he was filled with the wisdom and knowledge of Egypt, fluent in speech. He just didn't agree with what God said about him. God said, you're a deliverer. He said, no, I can't even talk. Gideon, you're a warrior. No, I'm a tiny little tribe. Mary, you're the mother of Jesus and the, the person to bring forth the Savior into the world. I'm a... Mary didn't scorn that word. She agreed with him. She said the same thing as heaven. And then the scripture says that Mary took the words, which means she agreed with them, and she treasured them in her heart. She stored them away. Y'all, if we could break down the Bible into one metaphor, I think this would be it. Seeds and wombs. It's about sowing seed of the kingdom. Jesus tells this parable. The sower went out to sow the seeds of the kingdom, and he threw them on different kinds of soil. The soil is the womb. The seeds are the words that God speaks. And when God spoke to Mary about filling her womb, her natural womb, her spiritual womb grabbed it and said, I don't understand this, 
but I'm going to hold on to it. The scriptures say, let the peace of God be the umpire in your heart. And then the peace of God, which guards your heart and mind, it passes your understanding, but it guards your heart. That we have to learn how to take what God says to us, agree with it, and treasure it. And if you're like me, really, really smart, really smart, and way too dependent on your mind to lead you and guide you, there's some people in this room this morning that have come into um, a moment in your life when you just don't know what to do anymore. And you have been so strategic and so wise and so gifted. And I feel like you just can't understand right now why you don't see the way forward. And I just want to submit to you this morning that I think the Lord is saying to you that you cannot find the way forward in your own knowledge. And that if you will submit your need to control the world with your own mental cognitive abilities, he will speak to you a word that will give birth to life in your family. That you can't control the outcomes. And that God brought you to a place and brought you here today to hear. You can't control the outcomes of your future. The one who is good that speaks words of life does. And he's got a word for you this morning if you will agree with it and treasure it in your heart. The last line of the Old Testament gets picked up in the New Testament about turning the hearts of the fathers to the sons. And there's a bit of a scary kind of judgment line in there. Lest I come and strike the earth with the decree of utter desolation. Guys, this is not a, this is not a promise, it's a description. It's a description of our culture, of what happens when the hearts of the fathers are not turned to the sons. When we're disconnected from our family, when we're disconnected from the family of God, when we're not submitted in loving Jesus, when we're not awakened, the culture is living in a decree of utter desolation, but God has come and said, I am sending you a way maker, a deliverer, a one to cry out in the wilderness, a one that is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the earth. That the decree of utter desolation, church, that you see around in culture right now, that is the circumstances, but it's not the truth. The truth is that God is not done with our nation. The truth is that the race issue has been dealt with at the cross. And that we are coming into agreement with what that means. And we're learning to treasure that in our hearts. And the people that want to scare you and divide you and separate you out into ideological camps, one against one another, they are not speaking the word of the Lord. They are speaking lies and division. And God has a plan for restoration. To restore all the broken pieces to restore the broken race relations, to restore the broken economic relations, to, to, to restore the sexuality and the ethic in our culture. God has a plan to restore, but it comes through the word of the Lord that gets delivered, 
gets delivered from this book and quickened in your spirit by the Holy Spirit, by angelic spirits, by the voice of God. And when you learn to partner with the voice of God and the written word of God, you can learn to introduce everyone you meet to the incarnate God, Jesus, our Savior. Would you pray with me? Living God, we thank you that you have not left us as orphans, but that you have come to us and that you've given us your Holy Spirit that it will lead us and guide us into all truth. It will tell us the things that are yet to come. It will remind us of everything that you told us and taught us. So living God, we ask this morning, God, by your Spirit that you would come and strengthen this body, that you would come and stir up the gifts of God in this place, that we would receive the power of the Most High God to be messengers of hope in the world, to be agents of kingdom unification instead of submitted and surrendered to the culture's division and destruction. We thank you, Jesus, that you are doing this even if we don't believe you. And we say to you this morning, God, we do believe, but help us Help us with our unbelief. And I just declare in Jesus' name a spirit of wisdom and revelation over this church that you would see and hear from heaven, that you would know the things of God, that you would hear his heart, see his actions, and do the same things of Jesus, that you would be agents of kingdom reunification, agents of destruction of the enemy's work, agents of peace and justice. We believe you for these things, King Jesus, and we love you. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen.